This is HPR episode 1958 entitled Fostum 2016K1A. It is hosted by Ken Fallen and is about 111 minutes long. The summary is Fedora, OpenSUSE, Illumos, OwnCloud, Enlightenment, Tizen, Collab, KDE, LibreOffice. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi everybody, this is Ken at the Fedora booth, and I'm back talking to... Yuji uh, Eichmann. Uh, I work for Forehead Head as a desktop engineering manager, and I'm also a Fedora ambassador and Fedora packager, and a couple of more roles in Fedora. And Fedora is a Linux distribution that is kind of leading edge, I guess, or would you say that? Uh, currently, we are trying... Uh, not to position us as a bleeding edge. We, I would rather say leading edge because we uh, like really currently we've been trying to uh, provide like really polished product, not something that is like bleeding new and could like break uh, people's computers, but something that is like pretty new and fully polished to use. So that's why we are the use a leading edge term than bleeding edge. Okay, leading edge it is. And what has been happening in the last year and what have you planned for the coming year? Uh, well, Fedora 23 was released just uh, like two months ago. Uh, so currently we are in the full uh, development for Fedora 24. And I can speak, for example, for Fedora Workstation, which is one of the, the Fedora flavor, official Fedora flavors that is focused on desktop users. And I think the, like, the, the biggest topic, uh, of Fedora 24 in, uh, desktop era is definitely Wayland, which is like the new, uh, display technology that should one time replace, uh, X server. Which is, which has been with us for like, I don't know, 25, 30 years. So it's going to be a huge change, uh, for the Linux desktop. And we are still not 100% sure if it's going to be default in Fedora 24. Uh, Fedora would be probably the first major distribution to, to adopt Wayland as, as a default. Uh, as, as I uh, said before, we are trying to be leading edge. So we, we won't push it as default until it's really ready. And uh, currently, it works pretty well. Users can use it, can try it already in Fedora 23. You just when on the login screen, you just pick GNOME on Wayland instead of the standard GNOME. So it's going to be just a matter of the default option, but still it's going to be pretty, pretty big. 
I think. Otherwise, for example, my team uh, recently submitted a proposal for inclusion of, we call the project QGNOME platform, which, uh, like, KDE and GNOME has always been, like, two different worlds, like, the, the applications were not well, very integrated into, like, uh, GNOME applications into the KDE Plasma and uh, KDE applications into GNOME. So with, with Q GNOME platform, we'd like to improve this. So for example, the Q GNOME platform should do syncing of settings between uh, GNOME settings and, and KDE settings. So for example, if you set some font in GNOME, it should be reflected in KD and Qt uh, applications as well. The same, for example, for, for scaling. If you scale the fonts or scale the windows, it should also scale uh, applications uh, the same way in the uh, uh, application for s applications from the other environment, pretty much. Is that, um, is that part of the uh, Open Desktop initiative, or is that just independent to Fedora? No, which, well, it's, it, sh it shouldn't be uh, Fedora only. Uh, on the other hand, it's not, it's not part of any like, larger project. It's just we have, a, we have a repo on GitHub, so it's open source. Any distribution can uh, pick it up uh, later if they find it useful. But currently, it's only like in early stage, we uh, we like to support at least some settings, like for example, the font settings or scaling uh, for Fedora 24. But then we'd like to build build on that. So that really, if our users use uh, Fedora Workstation, which is, which is based on GNOME, they don't really have to uh, install any other a configuration tools, you know, to make KD or Qt applications behave the same way uh, GNOME applications behave on their computers. One of our uh, hosts has the question with regards to file dialogues, um, that you're on a GNOME system, for instance, and you've got a particular type of file dialogue, and then you open a KDE application, and it's got another file dialogue, and you open up, I don't know, Firefox, it's got another file dialogue. Is there a way to, is this too simplified to ask this to be, well, I'm on GNOME, please use a GNOME file dialog. If I'm on KDE, please use a KDE file dialog. Is that too much to ask or, or is that just a complete madness engineering effort? I don't know the answer to this. I, I don't think it's that difficult. On the other hand, it's pretty much up to uh, the application. And if that application calls, you know, cute dialog, then dialog shows up so it doesn't I, I don't think the application asks you know what uh, desktop environment you are running on and then pick uh, the dialog they want that would be uh, I think ideal on the other hand yeah it doesn't doesn't work that way unfortunately so I everything would have to be rewritten to I, use a I mean, common file what, dialog. What, what we, for example, are trying to do besides that, uh, the queued GNOME platform, with, which is mostly about the sync, syncing settings, we, we also, for example, uh, ported Advaita theme, which is the default theme for uh, GNOME to Qt. So at least the, the applications and the uh, like 
the like UI and so on buttons look quite similar to GNOME. So if you run a KD application on GNOME, then the application doesn't look exactly the same because the, the, the widgets and so on are not like one one to one. But on the other hand, they, they look pretty, pretty close. So they, they some kind, kind, kind of, kinds of consistent, consistency is, is there. But yeah, it's still a long, long way to go. But it, that's, that's one of our like, uh, major, uh, tasks for the future to make uh, those two worlds like closer. So anything else that I missed that's coming up this year? Oh, let me let me think. I think the yeah, for, at least for the, the the desktop, the the Wayland, and uh, uh, we also had uh, other developers here uh, a while a while ago. Today, he works on Fleet Commander, which is also pretty pretty nice project. Because what the the Linux desktop has been missing is some some. Uh, tool for managing large deployments like imagine you have for example one one thousand uh stations in some company or organization and you want to manage them on the on the desktop level for example to uh, make some default settings for different groups in the organization uh install different applications and so on have different wallpapers, whatever. Uh, so, and a fleet commander should should do just this. Like you, and it's it's actually pretty innovative how you make such profiles because uh, Windows have had this for for a while. Uh, but to to change some settings in Windows, you need to go through the registry to look up the. Uh, the settings and change it in the registry, but uh, with Fleet Commander, it's actually much more uh, intuitive that you just start uh, a virtual session where you make the changes like you would do it on your own desktop, and on the background there is a, there is a daemon that is actually uh, tracking all the changes between the default and the current settings and then once you are done you just save it as a profile and then th- through fleet commander you can push it to users computers so that's that's another thing that is coming to to federal 24 and i think it would be pretty nice improvement for yeah actually larger deployments okay thank you very much for your time and uh, good luck with the rest of the show Hi everybody, I'm at the OpenSUSE stand and I'm talking to Sarah Julia Krisch. So, uh, what, can you tell us what OpenSUSE is and why you're here? <laughs> uh, we are an open, uh, open source project, a Linux project uh, with uh, OpenSUSE Leap and uh, Tumbleweed. We have different uh, distributions. The rolling release and our stable release. Tumbleweed is our uh, a rolling release and uh, Leap. Uh, 42.1 is our, our stable release from November 2015. And you're part of the, um, who owns OpenSUSE now? Is it a community project or is it a, run by an organization? 
That's a community project uh, with uh, 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 sponsors in the background. We get our uh, packages uh, uh, from our community uh, project Tumbleweed and SUSE Linux Enterprise by SUSE. Every year we will uh, uh, create uh, one release in November parallel to SUSE Linux Enterprise with service packs and we will get packages by them and from Tumbleweed and uh, combine uh, it then. Are you working for SUSE or are you here as a volunteer? I am a volunteer. I work for Brandmaker in Karlsruhe as a system engineer. And yes, I am a volunteer at OpenSUSE. So why would somebody, why should somebody run OpenSUSE instead of, I don't know, Fedora or CentOS or something? That's the laugh. <laughs> the laugh to OpenSUSE. I, I learned with SUSE Linux Enterprise a server during my education as a computer science expert for system integration. And after that, I was coming to an OpenSUSE conference, a conference for developers, uh, volunteers, and all who are interested for that. And I switched into the project then. Okay, one of the strongest things that people have said about uh, SUSE is the use of YAST. And one of the things that, uh, that I fear is that YAST does not respect configuration file changes. Has that changed, or can you now also edit the configuration file? Uh, you uh, can do it. Uh, I have spoken uh, with the team lead of Just. He said uh, he wants to have it in the future so uh, that Just would uh, read the configuration files and would show you the changes then, uh, uh, so that you should have a change log after that. For the security that just wouldn't remove anything, uh, we have got Snapper in the background that creates snapshots every day. And if you are seeing that anything would uh, be changed and you want to have it back, uh, you can uh, look uh, in, uh, to Snapper uh, uh, and can roll back it. So what, what uh, features have been, what have you been doing this year and what do you plan to do next year? What I am doing here? No, what, uh, what has the OpenSUSE project been achieved in the last year? In the last year, we have created our OpenSUSE Leap 42.1. Uh, what is that? That's our stable release. We have, uh, uh, we have changed our development uh, life cycle <coughs> so that we have got a yearly release and uh, uh, we publish it parallel to SUSE Linux Enterprise Service Packs. Okay, very good. And what have you uh, planned for this year? Any new features? Uh, we will see it. Everybody uh, uh, can contribute and say what you uh, want to do in the next year. Uh, that uh, will be published uh, uh, a short time before the release, we will, uh, we will, uh, that will be reviewed uh, by our review team. And after that, we will see what would be new then. Okay, you have some interesting devices here. Can you talk to me, tell me what they are? 
Uh, we are uh, Raspberry Pis here. Hey. Does uh, uh, OpenSUSE run on a Raspberry Pi then? I'm yes, that's with OpenSUSE. If you want to install uh, OpenSUSE on a Raspberry Pi, you can uh, find the instruction on our wiki. Uh, you can uh, use Google uh, for OpenSUSE Raspberry Pi and you can find the instruction. Uh, you can't use our uh, ISO image here on the table for that. Uh, use the instruction in the wiki for that. And is that an up-to-date release? Is it the same software as this, but a different yeah, version? That's the same software, uh, 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 but uh, a little bit smaller. Is there anything else that I missed that I should have asked? Is there anything else that you uh, that I missed in the interview that you want to tell us about? I don't see any problems. Okay, very good. I'm at the Illuminus stand and I'm talking to Dan McDonald. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for the business card. So I'm a bit confused here because I'm looking behind and I know that this Illuminus has something to do with Solaris. And I see all sorts of other uh, signs on the... Could you just give me a brief overview of what, what we're talking about? Um, Illumos is the uh, open source continuation of what used to be known as Open Solaris. Oracle closed Open Solaris, and, but you can't really kill an open source project. Illumos took over where Open Solaris left off. Illumos, like Linux, isn't big enough... It doesn't have all the components. It's more than just a kernel, but it also it has user land libraries and some commands. But Illumos by itself isn't enough to instantiate an operating system. So Illumos has distributions. And the other signs you saw behind us in our booth are the Illumos distributions. Not all of them, but more the most well-known ones. OmniOS, a server-focused one. Open Indiana, the continuation of Open Solaris on the desktop. Joyent SmartOS, which is a wonderful hypervisor and virtualization platform, um, and some of the more, some of the less known ones are up there as well, like uh, Triblix, which uses System 5 packaging, or um, Delos, which uses uh, APT or Debian packaging. Um, and we're going to be here at this booth for both days of FOSDEM, and I'm giving a talk on Illumos at 5 tomorrow, which is sort of... Uh, a bit of what I talked about here about how Illumos works and what it does. So um, I guess a lot of uh, server people are still running. Um, we'll switch to this, given that Solaris has been... Yeah, if you, if, you, if you liked all of the goodness from Open Solaris but don't want to have to deal with Oracle, yes, you should, you should definitely be trying an Illumos distro, and people are building their businesses and their livelihoods on it. In addition to the distros you saw up there, there are appliances out there, like Nexenta Store and Delphix. Delphix is a database database appliance that does wonderful work using ZFS, and Nexenta Store is a software-defined storage appliance. Okay, very good. And you're giving a talk tomorrow, so that by the time people hear this, this will be available on the FOSDEM yes. site. Thank you very much. Was there anything I missed? Sir? Was there anything I missed, or anything you coming up this year that we should know about? Um, 
I, if, if you miss Open Solaris, you should definitely give Illumos a try. There are paid support options, too, if your company is looking for something for a, for a throat to strangle. Um, so there are paid support op- options for SmartOS and for OmniOS. And um, I, I'd like people to try Illumos because it's all the stuff you remember from Open Solaris. So... I would just go to the Illumos. Is that a is that a separate distro or is it Illumos is that the is Illumos is the 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 topmost upstream. It's like Linux. It is the center, and then you have Illumos distros. So I could go to Open Open Indiana. Open familiar. Indiana.org to download Open Indiana OmniOS.omniti.com to download OmniOS, etc., etc. And then just uh, put in the CD and boot it, and voila. Or the USB stick. Yes. Very cool. Thank you very much. I'm at the OwnCloud booth and I'm talking to... Jos Botfleet. Hi Jos. The OwnCloud is a what now? It's basically kind of a self-hosted open source Dropbox-like technology. So you put it in uh, on your own server. Uh, a lot of people run their own server, VPS or private at home. And you can then put your files in it or alternatively mount files that you have on your NAS or on FTP somewhere. And then make them available via own cloud uh, for syncing and sharing. You have desktop clients, Windows, Linux, Mac, uh, for Android and iOS on your mobile phone. And you can share them via the web browser, send people a public link uh, with a password or, you know, uh, yeah. It's it. Then the nice thing is you can also add apps. So on top of the Dropbox functionality, you can add like apps for playing music, video, or um, calendar, contacts, mail. Uh, yeah, there's all past 200 apps. So you can add a lot of functionality. And you use uh, standard protocols like IMAP and iCal and stuff? Yeah, I mean, OwnCloud is pretty much completely web dev based. So uh, the client communicates with the server via web dev. The mobile clients do. The, even the web interface itself talks to web dev to the server. Uh, the calendar app talks card dev to the or talks call dev to the server. The contacts app card etc. So it's all very open standards based. Yes. Okay, very good. So what developments have you done this year? What has been the major achievements this year? I think in this year, uh, the two biggest focuses for last year and in 2015 were really uh, performance um, and usability. I mean, with OwnCloud 8.2, we did a big interface um, work, you know, and, and made a lot of things like came a new sidebar, which makes it easier to share files to see what's going on. So you have like an activity feed of every file and you can see like, oh, it was updated by that person, shared by that person, it was, uh, you know, downloaded by that person. So that gives you a bit of an idea of what's happening to your files. You can also see that centrally. So in OwnCloud 9, we will overhaul the, the notifications and this activity feed. So you get an activity feed that shows when people, for example, comment on a picture. And so you get kind of like a Facebook-ish, you know, feed of like what's going on with your data. And at the same time, you get notifications if somebody shares a file with you and you get a pop-up that says, hey, you know, and the top right, you get this little, you know, clock uh, alarm thingy that says, hey, somebody shared a file with you. Do you accept it? And this also works between servers. So one of the nice capabilities of OwnCloud is this federation. So if you have a friend who has an OwnCloud server, he can share a file to you by just giving your name at your OwnCloud server address and you get a notification and you can get the files. But they're still on his server, so he stays in control, just like you stay in control of the files that you share with others. At any point, you can unshare, 
undergone. Yeah, very good. That was my next question. So now that's it. The interview is over. So what do you? What have you? You already covered what you have planned uh, for the year. What? What am I seeing here on the desk? Yeah. So we have a couple of projects that are. Um, well, it actually came to us, right? So a couple of months ago, Western Digital came to us. You know, and you know these guys are in the business of selling hard drives. So. They're always looking for ways to sell more, and the idea of having people run their own cloud at home must be very interesting to them. So they have this this kit, they call it the Pi Drive Kit, which is essentially a hard drive with a couple of cables and a nice case that they sell with a one terabyte hard drive as a kit, and you can connect it to your Raspberry Pi. It's pretty, folks. Oh, it's very cool. It looks really nice. So they were thinking like hey you know wouldn't it be nice if we could uh, i mean they, they they they're selling this to people for things like Cody you know as a media player but they had been experimenting with own cloud and they thought why don't we talk to the own cloud guys so they came to us and they said hey can we do something together so what we're doing now is we're working with them on creating a kit which comes pre you know with own cloud on it out of the box with a nice own cloud logo on it and a nice you know top to to with an own cloud logo in it as well and an sd card which will come then with own cloud as a server pre-installed with some tools to make it easy to set it up and to get it through the firewall and configure your router and all that um so we're gonna do an initial batch of about 500 of them which will come out in the next two or three months and if these 500 do really well and people like it you know we'll improve on it and we'll do a bigger batch together with them or, well it's them doing it right we're just providing the software so that's absolutely excellent um and this one so the other one this is um well i'll let you feel it later on but it's really heavy it's uh, a pure aluminum cube Within it, a uh, Odroid uh, board. So this is a product from Spreet.me, which is a German company. They're developing a, a web conferencing or online, you know, teleconferencing tool. So it's like video and audio. Uh, I call it a Skype, but again, you run it on your own server, and it uses WebRTC. So you can do stuff like I mean, they aim this at small business. Uh, say you have a company, about 20 people, you know, you can do your weekly conference call on this thing if you have people who work from home, for example. But what you can also do is you can send a public link to a customer, for example, and invite them that way to a conference call and have a chat with them. And this thing comes integrated with OwnCloud. So what they've done is they put OwnCloud on it, they created an app that works with their conferencing system. So while you're in a conference call, you can also share files via OwnCloud and work together on that. So it all comes in one box that's really, well, nice and solid. And, you know, it costs a good dime too. It's not just heavy in terms of weight. But on the other hand, you can connect some drives to it, get a lot of data on it. It's very easy to set up. I think it's a very interesting product. And probably tax deductible if you uh, CapEx expense. Yeah, there's that too. Exactly, yes. And it's it's going to come actually already. I mean, this is the Raspberry Pi project. is going to take a couple of months, but this is going to come on the market in a few uh, weeks. Wow, it is heavy. I'm just going to leave that there and take a photo of all three. And then uh, anything else that we need to talk about? Well, I think everybody should check it out. I mean, we have now about 8 million users, which I think is quite impressive, especially because last year we had about estimated 2.3. So we're growing really fast. Um, I guess this is the right time to jump on board and go play with OwnCloud. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the interview. I'm here at the Enlightenment booth at Fostem, and I'm talking to... Philippe. Hi, Philippe. Um, 
Can you tell me what enlightenment is? Uh, what enlightenment is? Actually, it's two things. The first one is a toolkit, a full graphical stack to produce graphical applications, just like Qt or GTK, but it's another one. Uh, historically, we drove this to be light, faster, and usable in uh, embedded devices. And we use it to produce enlightenment. Enlightenment is a desktop shell. Maybe some people want to call it a window manager, but it's just a little bit more than that. Uh, and use the Enlightenment Foundation libraries to produce this desktop shell and some other applications like Terminal Emulator, Video Player, to offer the an, another way to see desktops. So we don't provide a, a user story to the user. The user is going to build his story of how to use his desktop. Our friends of GNOME produce you the GNOME like he is. You have to use it like they have thought about to, to you. We produce like we can tell like a framework. You just take it, go in the interfaces and do whatever you want. We used to have a play a game when Unity is, was released by Ubuntu to make up uh, enlightenment work like Unity only by configuration. It was a game at the time. We cannot do this anymore because Unity has grown, obviously. But at the time, I think four or, three, four or five years ago, it was just half an hour about find out how Unity works, take a look at Unity, and reproduce it with the configuration, only configuration of alignment. That's the way we produce fast software, nice software, well-coded, uh, to produce beautiful interfaces in low hardware and in big hardware too. So obviously I have laptops here with uh, 16 gigabytes of RAM, but we have phones with uh, half a gigabyte. I don't think it's half a gigabyte, I think it's less. And a single core ARM processor. And it runs just great. And where does one buy one of these phones? You need to live in India to buy this one. Uh, tomorrow you need to live in China and in Russia to buy a Z3, Z3, an abrogated phone of this, little bigger, little faster, and maybe this year, probably, I don't know, I don't work for for the builder. Uh, we have this kind of phones in Europe. I don't know about America. I don't know about South America, but what I know is Tizen. This is the OS of this phone. Is using Enlightenment Foundation libraries and Enlightenment, and is put it by Samsung everywhere in their devices, in their connected devices, fridge, uh, washing machines, uh, TVs, watches, whatever. They call it OS for everything. And uh, what are the uh, what are the plans for this year? For us, the plans are. Actually, continue the development, uh, fix the bugs, make a release at the end of the year, like every year now from four years ago, uh, and um, move up better configuration interfaces, go faster, 
be nicer to the eye? Basically the same old, same old. It's business as usual for uh, enlightenment. Um, there was a, a time when the releases weren't coming through, and now you say we've gone to a, a cycle. Has that, how has that improved? Has that helped the popularity? Has that helped development? We have to go back in history to understand that. When we released E16, a long time ago, really long time ago, uh, Rusterman says, wait, what do we do now? We, do, we need to do better. And to do better, we need a toolkit. So let's start creating a toolkit. Imagine what is create a toolkit with a very small developer community. And we spent 12 years working on the toolkit to finally release the toolkit and finally release E17. So one, when the toolkit is done, we just have to fix bugs and get improve the toolkit. We don't have to recreate it. So we can do a release in a year and maybe less. So we said, well, whatever, a year is enough. Do you, um, so what distributions do you ship with? But what distributions do you ship with? Oh, uh, Arch Linux. Uses, you can install it in Arch Linux. Uh, Body Linux, but I know if I don't know if it still exists. Uh, PC OS Linux. Uh, you can install it in Debian, Ubuntu, and uh, maybe others. I don't know. Just uh, do you use uh, X underneath, or do you use Wayland? You can use. Uh, XORG or Wayland because E20 is a full Wayland compositor. Is it now? Yeah. That's interesting. It's not using Western. It's implementing the protocol in in the... It's a real Wayland compositor. So was there anything that I missed that we should have told the audience? I don't hear your question. Sorry. Was there anything that I missed that uh, you would like to tell us? Uh, no give it a try and uh, maybe you can attend if uh, somebody is hearing and attend at FOSDEM you can hear Rusterman tomorrow it talks about Wayland and Enlightenment okay by the time this goes out the talks will be on the uh, FOSDEM website so we'll catch that there listen thank you very much And your name is? Uh, my name is Paweł Wieczorek. And what is Tizen? Uh, Tizen is a GNU Linux distribution aimed at embedded devices, which currently are TVs, mobiles, uh, and uh, in uh, soon future, also uh, all wearables from Samsung. All wearables from Samsung. Are you related to Samsung in some way? Uh, yes, I am. I am a Samsung employee. And would this be a Samsung T-shirt or not? No? Uh, yes, that's uh, that's Samsung T-shirt. Uh, that's T-shirt from Sinara Project, uh, which is uh, our uh, privilege uh, control uh, service uh, run, that runs in user space and uh, uses Unix domain sockets for maximum performance. Okay, cool. Now, Tizen was that was coming from the Intel Foundation before. Was that, that that distribution? From Linux Foundation, that's right. And uh, it was developed to, together with Tizen. Uh, with Intel. Tizen was uh, developed together with Intel. Uh, right now, Samsung is the biggest contributor uh, to Tizen. Uh, today, we are uh, demonstrating 
our uh, latest uh, achievements uh, in Tizen 3.0 uh, platform. Uh, you can see uh, Vazum containers, an alternative to Docker, which supports uh, also uh, GPU hardware acceleration. We are also demonstrating uh, Sainara, which I mentioned earlier, together with uh, Privilege uh, Checker, which uh, allows to uh, allow or ban some uh, applications from uh, accessing uh, valuable data. We are also demonstrating our uh, latest creation, which is a fully unattended automating testing system. For testing what now? Uh, we are testing uh, Tizen images on different architectures. Uh, for all ar architectures we uh, deploy images on, we have a group of devices which are uh, flashed, rebooted, and uh, on which we run uh, compliance tests in order to early detect any regressions and also not to publish those images that might, uh, might uh, cause failure for developer or end user. Is this something that's now just useful for Tizen or can that be taken by other projects and used by them? It can be used uh, by any project which has target devices which uh, can boot from uh, SD card. We developed a uh, custom designed uh, uh, board which Let's is... walk over here and have a look. All right. It's, very, it's been very hard to get to this table all day with people coming and having a look. If nothing else, there's a big, great big red button there. All right. So uh, what these boards actually do... I uh, put a picture in the show notes. They uh, provide easy access from both our testing uh, host machine and from our targets to these micro SD cards. These micro SD cards can be flashed directly from uh, test host machine uh, and uh, then switched to target device for running tests. All tests uh, results are published at our wiki, uh, at our wiki page. So uh, all results are reproducible and can be rerun if someone needs more thorough testing. So these are not really SD cards. Are they real SD cards? or how do you, you don't physically have to take them out of the device and put them into the other. Uh, that's the main purpose for these boards. These are real SD cards, but... Uh, this setup runs uh, full on uh, full automatic uh, level. Uh, there is no need for any manual work. Uh, it also uh, notifies. So sorry. So these boards have an SD card in them, and then they have a they have a reader underneath, so you can reprogram them, and then they're mapped to the device themselves. Exactly. Okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Uh, that's not uh, everything. Uh, these boards provide us. They also uh, provide a relay for uh, cutting power when a device needs to be rebooted on in case... Yes, that's exactly. Uh, or uh, if in case of uh, major failure uh, when we need to um, flash a new image. They also uh, provide capability of uh, debug bridge uh, and uh, they are all... Uh, they are all uh, 
um, controlled uh, via the last uh, USB. Uh, the uh, nice thing about this setup is that uh, apart from all power supplies for these boards, only single cable has to be connected to our uh, host uh, machine. Okay. And is, uh, is this uh, something that you deliberately built or can somebody do this these tests remotely? Do you physically need to be here? Uh, I don't physically need to be here. Uh, this runs fully unattended and uh, the main uh, purpose behind this idea was that testing of new images was too much time consuming. Release engineers cannot uh, give too much time uh, for such a um, repeatable task. This has to be automated and that's exactly what we did. So th this is the hardware thing, I get that. What are they, uh, when you boot the images up, it, what uh, starts the testing? What do you write the tests in? We, uh, for starting testing, we use uh, already mentioned uh, debug bridge. Yep. And tests that are run are called TCTs. Uh, this stands for Tizen Compliance Tests, which, uh, which are run in order uh, to early detect any regressions in API which developers can later use. Okay. And then those are fed back here to... How easy it's, is it to develop those? Is that something that you do as you're developing code? Uh, you, do so you mention I'm, I'm developing a feature for one of these devices. Then I would develop a test case to go along with that uh, feature, I guess. I guess it's uh, uh, not a hard task. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I uh, cannot. Uh, so how do I how do I add a new test to this system? Currently, TCTs uh, are not publicly available, okay. but they uh, soon might. Uh, once uh, this is completed, a new test case would be just a, a patch on our uh, Git tree uh, for TCTs. And is this something that you um, would envisage other people being able to use outside other hardware devices outside of Samsung? We would uh, certainly like to uh, do so. Uh, we, uh, what we want is to give back to community and uh, all devices that can boot from SD cards can benefit from uh, these uh, SD cards, the multiplexers. It's... it's very awesome. I will include a, a picture in the show notes. What else do you have on show here? Uh, right here, I have a, a demo of uh, Vazum, which is uh, alternative to uh, Docker container service. Vazum supports uh, GPO uh, hardware acceleration. So uh, right now, on a single computer, both gaming and banking and maybe some uh, other private uh, data can be easily isolated and uh, also easily switched between different containers. Which, uh, so the red, green and blue there were, were different containers? Yes. Uh, so what happened there, folks, was uh, imagine just a like switching a work... Uh, you switch from one workspace to another. So, uh, imagine that... Uh, 
you would like to isolate your uh, all accounting, your all uh, internet banking from your dodgy uh, website. For example, uh, and uh, you would like also to uh, have a, a gaming computer which would uh, be uh, um, divided from all of this. So earlier you would have to uh, buy three different computers. Right now it's easier to create uh, containers which isolate all these uh, three environments. And uh, by uh, clicking button on our target device, uh, I switched uh, between all uh, these three containers. Awesome. Let's move on. Wayland terminal, what does that mean? Uh, this uh, terminal runs on Raspberry Pi uh, version 2. And we're just going to take a photo of the back. Yep, got it. As, and as you can see, uh, we uh, do not support uh, only uh, Samsung Exynos-based devices, uh, but uh, community also managed to uh, support uh, other uh, SBCs. Sorry, it's wrong. <laughs> I completely missed that. It's running on a Raspberry Pi. Oh, yes, it's okay, running sorry, on a Raspberry Pi. And if uh, you could wait a moment, I've yeah. got another uh, demo coming up. Yeah. Where are you based? Where do you work? Where do you live? Where oh, uh, I, I work and live uh, in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, I work at uh, Samsung R&D Center, Poland. We also have a, a Tizen board which acts uh, as a HID device. It is detected by host computer as a keyboard. And uh -huh. let me show you. Okay. Let's walk over here to the big red button. Yep. This is default. Uh, uh, this is default Ubuntu environment. And by pressing this device, we trigger uh, an action which. Uh, sends via USB uh, base64 encoded uh, picture and uh, command uh, line um, and a command which changes wallpaper. So, as you can see, uh, Tizen devices can be uh, changed into uh, simple USB gadgets. You can uh, build your own USB gadget uh, Basing on Tizen devices. Oh, very good. Is there a? Is it on your website? Devices that you can purchase, or where I can find a phone, for instance, that runs Tizen uh, that I can what, root what myself. What you saw here uh, was all running on uh, Tizen 3.0 platform. Yeah. Uh, this is not available uh, currently or any products. Okay. 
but uh, Tizen 2.4 is already available at, uh, on uh, Samsung uh, Gear smartwatches. And uh, if you'd like to, yeah. uh, we already may uh, walk to the last uh, demo we are showing today. Yeah, cool. All right. This is a demo of uh, our uh, privacy uh, manager software. Yeah. This software runs uh, for uh, managing access control to the privileges for uh, different applications. Okay, so what I see is two windows, privacy manager and contacts asking for first name and last name. When you uh, use your uh, mobile phone and want to um, isolate your private data, you might not want all the applications to use them. Yeah. With privacy manager, uh, you can easily decide which applications uh, can uh, or can't uh, use uh, specific uh, privileges uh, or you can uh, set it to always ask you for permission. So is this similar to the Android permissions or is it more fine-grained than that? The uh, high-level concept is similar but our solution uh, is based on already mentioned Sainara, yeah. which is uh, a software of much higher performance. Okay, cool. And can I, um, is this up to the developers to decide uh, how much access you can give, or can you as a user just decide that? Uh, privileges list is available at our wiki, yeah. and uh, the control lies directly in the hands of users. If a uh, user wants to share some uh, valuable data with applications, she or he might decide to do so. But if not, uh, she or he might also easily decline. Okay, very good. And what are the plans for the coming year? When can I get my hands on the latest 3 version running on a device I can buy? Uh, Currently, for a reasonable price. <laughs> currently, I cannot uh, provide any specific dates, but uh, uh, this year yeah. there are planned two milestone releases, and uh, our uh, automated testing uh, laboratory uh, will probably uh, make sure uh, both milestone releases are as stable as possible at uh, lowest. Uh, uh, time pressure for release engineers. So when uh, my fri my Samsung fridge breaks, I know who to come calling to. <laughs> I hope we will manage uh, to stop that before it happens. Is this uh, this is kind of an internet internet of things in question? I, I'm quite concerned about the whole security implications of that. Is that what this uh, privacy manager is intended to address? That's exactly right. Uh, Tizen is built uh, on, uh, on a promise of secure uh, operating system. It was uh, always uh, designed with security in mind. And as for IoT, we also got a community demo. Uh, as you can see, I can uh, change the frequency with 
uh, my phone. So you've got a, a phone there, and uh, on it is a FOSTEM logo, and you're changing the frequency of the fan. Oh, just by using, by, there's a little fan plugged into a, a USB fan, and just by moving the um, volume control on the Samsung phone, it's increasing or decreasing the angular momentum of the fan. God, angular momentum, where am I coming from? That's Seriously. exactly right. That's uh, How's it doing this? Uh, it uh, communicates with other Tizen-based uh, device with minimal environment, something which could land on an IoT device in future. So you got like a base station here connected to a Raspberry Pi, connected to a USB, and then you change the speed of the fan. Exactly. All wirelessly uh, for ease of use. It's actually a lot cooler than what I've just explained. So, uh, yeah. This is, this is good stuff. So, um, you're not going, if I stop recording now, will you be able to tell me then what phone I can buy in six months' time? <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I, is the I'm answer. Afraid, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do not yet know, but I would uh, most definitely also uh, like to know that. Yes, very good. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No problem. I'm at the Colab booth, Collaborative in Confidence. What's this up? Who are you and what is Colab? Sure. So I'm Aaron Saigo um, with Colab Systems, the company behind Colab, which is, if you think of uh, Google Apps or Microsoft Exchange, but 100% free software, open source. We don't do proprietary software. Um, so Colab provides a range of uh, features that you'd come to expect from a collaboration platform, shared mail, calendaring, contacts, notes, to-dos, and files. Uh, we actually just announced today our working that we're working with uh, Colabora uh, with Cloud Suite. So we'll be, be bringing uh, collaborative editing of Office documents in the web browser with Colab. So at this point, you have something that you could just drop Google uh, Docs or Google Apps for or Office 365. And instead, you have something that's open and free. So Colab is available. You can run it on your own server, or you can go to colabnow.com and get your own instance of it, or just sign up for a single email, even, address. Um, and all those features are available there. So that's what we do. So when you say it's open source, that's, that's fine. But um, are the protocols themselves open, that you use open protocols? We, we stick to, for all of the defaults, open protocols only, open standards. So we speak uh, IMAP, SMTP, LDAP, etc. Um, we don't invent what we, what we don't have to. If something exists, we use it. Period. Plain and simple. Uh, we do provide support for things like ActiveSync, though, which is not the most open of protocols, but this is required so that people can uh, connect to it with the device of their choice. One of the things that we believe in anyways is making sure for free software to, to spread, people need to be able to get access to it on their own terms. So while we ship with a great web app, it's actually RoundCube, which we're also the developers of, uh, with Colab. You can access Colab from uh, rich desktop clients like Contact or Thunderbird and Lightning, or on macOS, the Mail app and iCal. That works beautifully. Even Outlook, uh, 2013 and newer, you can use ActiveSync, right? Mobile phones, iOS, Android, uh, Windows Phone, the three people still using BlackBerry, uh, etc. 
So we let you choose how you access the system and the data. And what we see as our mission is making it possible for people to collaborate, as we say, in confidence, right? Which means you know your data is secure. We know your privacy is, is intact, right? We don't access your data with no phoning home, etc. Even on our hosted services, we guarantee your, the privacy of your data, which is uh, in part possible because we're based in Switzerland, and as is all of our hosting. So we come under Swiss law, um, and our commitment to privacy and freedom is part of our DNA. Um, the CEO of our company and founder actually is also the founder of the Free Software Foundation Europe. So this is really part of our DNA. So we like to produce amazing software. We think it's the best collaboration platform out there, available, proprietary or otherwise. Um, but it's open as well. And that's the important thing for us. Is it not a bit heavier than something like uh, OwnCloud? So OwnCloud is a very different kind of application in general, right? It's, it's files. Um, but no, so we have it running here at the booth on a Raspberry Pi. I'll take a photo. This is a cool case. But yes. uh, okay. Uh, and... I don't know how much smaller you want to get. So, oh, Raspberry Pi is small enough, yeah. At the same time, we have... Um, so, Sears Corporation in the United States, they run Colab. They have it in two data centers, one in Chicago and one in Eastern Europe somewhere. They're synced real-time, so that if one gets you know, nuked from space, they still have the second one up and running. Is that part of the Colab uh, build? Yes. So, Colab is built for extreme scalability and cluster management. Uh, this year, we're actually going to be releasing, uh, typically we recommend release, uh, deploying on VMs, on uh, KVM usually, although we have clients that use it on Hyper-V, uh, but so, uh, we support that as well. Uh, but this year, we're uh, coming out with a um, Dockerized version of Colab, where you then get to use Kubernetes to manage your cluster in real time. So if you suddenly get a spike and you need you know, more IMAP or you need more AptoSync, simply tell Kubernetes and it will, it will spin off a bunch more of those services. Uh, we have some clients that run part of Colab outside their DMZ and part of Colab behind their firewall. So this is um, for more security uh, conscious uh, clients who, you know, yeah. So we have one client, for instance, that uh, email is not allowed to leave the premise. So they have SMTP and those services outside, but all the IMAP, the web app, everything else is internal and is firewalled off. And because of the service-oriented architecture that allows us to do the Dockerized containers, and these Docker containers aren't, you know, collab in one piece, it's around 30 different containers all put together. Uh, that same architecture allows us to do things like split up collab across a, with a DMZ in between, Right. So these are features you don't see in many other places. Uh, for large-scale deployment as well, uh, we support in-place, real-time updates and upgrades without user interruption. Okay. So in a virtualized environment, right? If you kind of think of it as left and right. Okay, because so, uh, now yeah. you're promising too much. You, know, you, you had me for a while and then you lost me. I simply can't believe this. We do this regularly on collabnow.com. So how, you have a hot and cold version, yeah? That's right. So um, at colabnow.com, we host. Uh, we have a public cloud uh, hosted in Switzerland that it runs on. Um, we also do hosted instances. Uh, so you have your own instance if you want as well. Uh, and there, when we do upgrades, we migrate everyone to one half of the cluster, upgrade the first half, migrate everyone back to the now upgraded version, 
upgrade the second half and then rebalance the cluster. Very nice stuff. Yeah. Very nice stuff. But obviously, you don't need that overkill points, as he pointing at the Raspberry Pi. Yes, yeah, your Raspberry Pi, you might, you know, a reboot once in a while is okay. Um, how easy is it to get your hands on it? Is it an app guess? Or, uh, yep. So if you go to colab.org, uh, on there, there's a download link, and it takes you actually to our documentation for this. And yes, we provide repositories for uh, Debian-based distributions, uh, as well as RPM-based distributions. Uh, or you can grab the source if you want and, and build it. Uh, so you add the repository to your sources list, and then, yeah, apt-get or yum install away. And you... Presumably, we have all the phone integration and uh, Android integration, iOS. How are you making money with the hosted service, is it? That's one of the ways. Uh, we also do deployment uh, projects, um, custom development, and we also have paid support. So you can purchase support per account uh, with us. That allows you to uh, you know, pick up the virtual phone, if you will, file a ticket, get support for your client issues and whatnot. Um, so we do that as well. So you can use it on your own, self-hosted, self-supported, and that's absolutely great. But if you, especially if you're a company, most of the time you want an SLA of some sort. You can come, exactly. I mean, how long can you live without your calendaring, right, as a company? Zero. So uh, we're here as a company to make sure that your deployments are beautiful, perfect, and no downtime. And the, the, the Colab server itself is an IMAP server, is it is a Cal server. Can you outsource that to... Say as a foot into an exchange or something, or into a, another mail client. Uh, so mail clients, you get to pick. Servers, we provide the the whole the IMAP, the um, SMTP, and for that we actually use. So for SMTP, it's Postfix. For the IMAP, it's Cyrus IMAP. Um, for directory integration, which is an interesting point, most again organizations already have a directory service that might be OpenLDAP. It might even be Horror of Horrors Active Directory. Uh, and you can use those as your authentication source for Colab. Now, Colab comes with the uh, directory server. So if you don't have one, you install Colab. It works right out of the box. There is a web-based admin GUI that you can go in and add your users. But if you're an organization with existing infrastructure, you can take Colab and integrate it with that. How did you tell us your story? How did you get this far? How did you... Sure. So Colab started when the BSI in Germany, which is their uh, information security organization, federal level, they said, we need for Germany, and uh, you know the BSI itself, a open, secure, scalable groupware system. And they went looking for it, and they couldn't find it because it didn't exist at the time. So Colab was created in response to this need at the BSI. That was the beginning. Wasn't this done on KDE at the time? Was this yeah, so in, co in collaboration with KDE, yeah. You have some links with KDE as well, if I... Yeah, as well. I've been involved in KDE myself uh, on a personal level for longer than I care to admit. Um, we continue to work with the upstream there as well on Contact, the desktop client, and the new version, Cube. Um, so KDE is still part of what we, who we are and what we do, um, although, of course, we support all the desktop environments and whatnot. Um, so from there, uh, Colab kind of you know moved forward bit by bit. But in 2010, uh, the founder of the Free Software Foundation Europe, Georg Greve, uh, looked at Colab and thought, it's moving too slowly. How can you get professional support for it? And if you can't get professional support, then how can it, how can it be adopted by large organizations? So he founded Colab Systems to fill that gap. So in 2010, uh, Colab Systems AG 
uh, was founded in Zurich, Switzerland, which is where we still are. And all of our data is hosted as well. So we have that nice Swiss law for privacy and whatnot. Uh, he started Collab Systems to push Collab forward. And since that uh, time, Collab has moved at a blistering pace in terms of uh, features, scalability, and whatnot. Are you a profitable company? Yes. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, we're making money. We're actually hiring. So if you're a developer... Yeah. I'll ask no, but there, there might be developers on the list. There might be one or two. Um, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. We're growing. We have offices in Berlin, Zurich, uh, a small satellite outside of London. Uh, we're opening up um, in Austria this year as well. So Okay, and you yourself, how did you come into the whole free open source scene? So I cut my teeth. Uh, God, now you're going to find a hole I am. <clears throat> I cut my teeth. My first full-time job developing was in 1992. It was on a Sun OS machine. Solaris didn't even exist yet. Uh, and I fell in love with the Unix world. Um, I had been using the Internet for a couple of years already at that point. Sorry, excuse me. Um, and again, through Unix shells. So this was where, that's, that was kind of my, my home turf. Uh, in the mid-90s, I moved back to my home country of Canada, uh, and in and around the Vancouver area at the time, Windows NT was the thing, and everyone was moving to it, and it was getting increasingly hard to find jobs uh, working on Unix. And that I found very disappointing. I looked and went, oh my goodness, if Windows NT becomes what everybody runs in the world, I will, I will switch professions. And it was around that time, actually it was in 1998 exactly, I can even tell you the month, September, uh, I made a decision in my personal life to commit myself to working on free software and Linux. So I started a small company, and I actually had to go in and sell people on the idea of Linux before I could sell them on the idea of my services. <laughs> so it was back, I mean, people would ask, what, is, what Linux, what is that? They hadn't heard of it, right? Um, and now here we are, what's almost 20 years later, right? Um, 18 years later, I guess. Uh, and Linux has eaten the world. It's amazing and fantastic. Uh, but that was my journey into it. And around 2001, or 2000, I guess, um, KDE was doing their 2.0 version. And I saw a lot of really interesting and cool stuff there. Uh, and I was trying it out on my, my desktop at home in the home office. And I saw a bug in the uh, run command dialog. Small one, nothing big. So I was like, ah, I, I, first how, one is free. Yeah, yeah. How hard can it be? So I opened up the the, uh, the code, looked at it, found the bug, fixed it, sent a patch, went to bed. Woke up the next morning and there was an email in my inbox saying, thank you very much. It's been applied. I was like, what? So, you know, did a CVS up. Yeah, we were still using CVS then. Um, and uh, there it was. I was like, oh my goodness, that was amazing. That was so easy. And uh, yeah, uh, fast forward a decade or so and uh, had done the uh, Plasma project. Um, which still has the part as one of its components, a run dialogue. So I somehow managed to work on that run dialogue for yeah, something like 13 years. Um, but uh, that was how I got into free software. And Georg and I knew each other uh, through the free software world. Obviously, him at FSFE. <laughs> I uh, visited him in his offices in Zurich once, even there. Uh, we, so we knew each other from conferences and whatnot. I moved to Zurich uh, a few years ago. And we just, you know, we said, ah, oh, it'd be nice, you know, sitting back at the beer. It'd be really cool to do something together someday. We should find a chance, an opportunity. So at the end of 2014, that chance came, the stars aligned, and uh, we looked at each other and went, let's do this. Uh, so I joined Collab Systems. Uh, so now I'm working pretty much exclusively these days with uh, with Collab and, and the company around it. 
Fantastic. Uh, we do a How I Got Into Linux series, so yeah. I think uh, we'll, we'll file this one under that. Cool. Um, I had a, one question there about that, one, that has come up a few times, yep. and it, it's a question on the IRC. Uh, when you have a Linux desktop with mis- mixed applications from one system to another, and you have a file dialog, wouldn't it be nice if you were running KDE that Firefox would have the KDE file dialog and a GNOME application would have the KDE file dialog and vice versa if you're on the other applications? Is that is that an easy problem to state, but a very difficult problem to implement, I suspect? It's not an easy problem, but it's one that's been generally solved. So Firefox already does, like in my laptop here, when I open Firefox or Google Chrome and I open up a file and I get this, you know, save as or open dialog, it's the KDE one. So we already have... How? Does so not compute, Captain. What you need to be using is a distribution that cares about packaging uh, and, and puts it together correctly. Now, GDK applications. Harder question. So in the Qt world, we actually have a wrapper around the concept of a file dialog, right? So when you're on Windows, you get the Windows dialog. When you're on Mac, you get the Mac dialogs. When you're on Linux, you get the Linux dialogs. If you're running a Qt app inside of GNOME, you'll get a GDK file dialog. Ah, cool. So we really care about integration. I wish the same could be said about all the projects, but we can't. So from the Qt and KDE world, uh, integration has always been something very important to us. Um, so the other way around of having your GDK applications use a, a Qt or a KDE file dialog, I, I keep hoping and wishing one day it will happen. All I can recommend to people is if you want a nice, seamless environment, Use as many Qt and uh, applications as you can. Use Firefox, etc., that have done this work as well, because integration also matters to them. Um, if you do use KDA applications or Qt applications on GNOME, though, you will find that we have a... Uh, ah, or the other way around. If you use GDK applications in uh, a Plasma desktop, they will actually look or have the look and feel of it because we have a GDK theme for Breeze and Oxygen, depending on whether you're using 4 or 5 of, of Plasma. So we actually do try and bring all this together. It is a hell of a lot of work. Uh, getting to this point took many years, uh, but we've done the work. And I think the last kind of missing bit is for GDK to join the game. Um, you're still working on KDE, are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still commit from time to time. I have a, another question from one of our blind uh, uh, listeners who's a developer and uh, to put it likely KDE isn't that great when it comes to accessibility and screen readers like uh, the Orca screen reader just basically doesn't work um, you get Firefox works and that's it is there is there a way we can fix this for everybody it'd be nice yeah so there's a uh, the ATSPI framework right and that can actually again Qt can be built with that and once you have that, then you gain introspection to the application. So that's the framework part. And that's already done. And there, again, if it's packaged properly. Um, the next step from there is making sure the apps themselves don't get in the way of that. Um, and I'm sure there is some, some work to be done there. I don't know personally where exactly we're still falling short. Um, but file bugs... Okay. And if I can get the uh, app, the distros to, or the KDE applications to have that enabled by default, then people should have it out of the box. This is another really good example as well of how uh, in this, on that side of the world, in the cute KDE world, we try our best not to reinvent wheels, right? So the Orca screen reader, that we don't have a screen reader for, quote unquote, you know, plasma desktop. We're happy Orca exists. We love the fact that all that effort has been put into it. And so we recommend and use it 
uh, for accessibility purposes. Um, same thing with the SPI, ATSPI. That was invented at Sun, if I remember correctly. Um, way back in the day, uh, I sat on a industry committee um, around getting AT, ATSPI uh, usable for the rest of the world. So that was when they moved from Corba to Dbus. Um, I happen to be responsible for that, so I don't know if I should. If, apologies. <laughs> no, moving from Corba is always a good idea. So that was um, one of the things that we did, and it was because we wanted to reuse it again. We didn't want to see Linux. Uh, or free software in general to have like this split where you know you have to be running ATSPI or ATSPI for these applications and K something for these applications. We wanted one framework, right, so we could share our resources. And that's I think a really indicative of our of our spirit. Um, and that is the open desktop. Um OpenDesktop.org. Are, are you still feeding into that? Because uh, it sometimes doesn't show. So I was actually just talking with a guy that works um, on SystemD and uh, what is the other thing he works on? Something else. Anyways, uh, Leonard. No, 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 not Leonard. Um, and he was he was, he brought the same question. He's like, is is freedesktop.org actually like broken? Is it even living? Like, what is up with that? Um, I think that the consensus generally is, and I'll speak personally. My personal viewpoint on it is that it's been broken for years and it has been repeatedly uh, noted ways of improving it have been suggested um, and they have it has never been taken seriously I think by the, the people involved in freedesktop.org so while we do go there still to collaborate and work with others as much as we can uh, it's for all intents and purposes it's a, a barely breathing organization and that's really sad uh, the world would be a lot better, in free software anyways, if we had a working, healthy uh, place for this kind of collaboration to occur. That said, uh, we do see, I think, more collaboration than we have in the past ever. Uh, I've already talked about things like, oh, we have a GDK theme, right, for uh, GDK apps. I mean, 15 years ago, that would have been hearsay. Um, Canonical is using Qt and QML which is the exact same stuff that Plasma Mobile is using and Plasma Desktop, right? Um, and so there's a lot of this kind of crosstalk and collaboration that's happening at many different levels. So maybe freedesktop.org isn't as important now as it once was. You have to remember, when freedesktop.org was founded, we, had, we didn't even have a shared cl uh, clipboard spec, right? I mean, it was just a world of chaos. Um, and freedesktop.org came in and, and really brought a lot of very basic, fundamental... Stuff like uh, a window manager, being able to full screen an app, didn't exist, right? Uh, and so we had the universal window manager hints. And I remember back when, you know, Blackbox and all of those guys were adding support for it. Um, that was a different era, right? And we really needed free desktop to work then. Today, maybe we can do without it. Maybe. I don't know. One one final question now that I have you here. Yep. Can you explain activities in KDE to me? Sure. So activities are very simple. Uh, the concept is it's a project-oriented workflow, right? So you create an activity for, um, if you're a student, maybe one for each class, right? So you have one for mathematics, one for social studies, geography, whatever. Uh, in a, I use it to um, for each project at work. I'll have an activity. 
and then you can switch between activities and what you get is the files, the tags, the contacts, the people, etc. that you associate with that activity up front and center. So, for instance, in Dolphin, the file manager, or on the Plasma desktop, you can have it show the, uh, all the things that are associated with that activity. So for people who that work on more than one thing at once, I need to switch between them quickly. Um, you can kind of think of it as like virtual desktops for projects. Why not use just the regular old windowing? So how do you use that for uh, power management? You don't. You can't. So uh, I have a profile, for instance. That's See, that's for, what I mean. I don't get activities. Yeah, for for uh, presentations. And in there, my power management settings are different so that it doesn't turn the screen off. It doesn't have a, the screensaver is disabled. Um, you can cut off your network, etc. Right, so you don't get the embarrassing, you know, I am pop up or whatever uh, while you're presenting. So when I do a presentation, I switch to my presentation activity, and this is all configured. Then when I'm done with my presentation, I switch to another activity, a regular one, and it goes back to my daily use. I don't have to go in, into the settings control panel every single time. Right. So I could like have I'm on the train, and then yeah. it disables my network. Ah. So for the for the mobile world, right, this is really cool because you have this tiny screen, right? So when, when we came up with the idea for activities, this is actually how it happened. I was doing field research for Plasma, by which I mean I was going in and watching people use computers in real offices and just sitting behind them taking notes. Spent days doing this. <laughs> um, I was at uh, a shop, a company that makes uh, prints uh, flags and corporate um, branded stuff. And I was sitting behind their graphic designer. And I watched him move between different projects he's working on. And he was on a Mac, so he would drag the folder that had all the files uh, for that project onto the desktop, open the file folder, drag all the files from that folder onto the desktop, and start working. When he was done with that project for the time being, he select all the files, move them back into the folder, move the folder back into the disk, and so on. I was like, oh my God, this is what computers are for. They're there to help us manage our data. What happened was we got stuck in this 1984 mindset of Apple, not Big Brother, but the Apple concept that all you need is like one desktop with icons on it, right? That was in a day when there was no networking as a norm. It was just islands, you know, your machine was not connected to anything, usually. You had a floppy disk that held the operating system in your apps. Uh, you, if you had an address book, it was a text file, right? It was a simpler world. People didn't have... How many files do you have on your computer, do you think, your laptop? Yeah, you probably actually have hundreds. Of, if you think about every email, for instance, being a file. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so every, every song you have, every video that you've downloaded, your browser uh, bookmarks and history, and everything, right? There's more files now on a computer than you could, if you actually sat down and started reading them, you know, it would take years. Um, and yet our computers haven't moved much from that day when we designed a GUI for a computer with a floppy disk and no networking. So Activities was a way to give people another tool. It's optional, you don't have to use them. But it gives you another tool for actually managing that by simplifying the, the context of your, of your data, saying, well... I only am focusing right now on this. Right, that's the current thing I'm doing. We're going to name activity. Um, and when I'm doing that, I care about these files, these people. I want my settings like that, unless you focus. So in Plasma Active, which was the predecessor to Plasma Mobile, uh, we had the little drawer. You slide it out from the side, unless you switch in your activities. And that changed the home screen as well. 
right? So I use that for when I was on vacation. I'd have all the menus for... I, I love food, so I'd always go and grab um, menus from different restaurants I plan on visiting when I'm on vacation. Uh, maps and all of that on my home screen. So I'd have an activity per vacation that I would do, right? And then for work and whatnot, I'd have another activity. And that would have links to my mail app and whatnot. So even on vacation, I could quickly switch over to work mode quickly, check my mail, and then switch back. Right. And so applications allow you to cluster not only your files and your data, but also your applications with it. Right? So you can focus on what you're actually trying to focus on. Um, to me, it's obviously not the only way of doing it, uh, but to me, it's, a, I think, a very powerful way of giving uh, the person a quick and easy way to tell the computer what you're focused on and therefore show you what is related to what you're focused on. So, yeah, so technically, yes. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't well, think we have any... Your technically yes and my technically yes might be slightly... So, what, well, no, what you, so, the way you would probably do it is so you can associate applications with activities, right? So you'll be able to associate that script or whatever with the activity. And when you switch activities, it starts applications that aren't started. So that would be the way to, to go through that. Right. So, yep. One last question that I have here. Uh, I like... Uh, about the disappearing two, actually. I have two questions, really. Okay. And then I'm going. Um, one is, there seems to have been a memo sent around to everybody saying remove the menus. Why, why are menus being removed? To me, it, mean, it, it makes it very difficult to explain to somebody how, you know, go to the file menu and then go, discoverability disappears. You can put them back, yes, but I'm concerned that you won't be able to put them back. And people will see the functionality that's been given to them by the developer. And especially in the KDE world, that seems like a deviation from the, here's a nice desktop that we think you're going to work. Here, press this button if you want to change it. So I don't think that it, it interferes with customization. Um, so I, I don't really think there's a connection there. Uh, that said... And I mean, this is one thing about getting older, right? I'm, I hit my 40s, so I understand what this is, you know, what it means now to get older. Um, and the new generation, they, they do use computers differently than we do, or did, or learned. Uh, it was a different time. Um, these days, people use menus less and less, and menus pose a large number of, of usability obstacles. Number one, they're inherently hierarchical. And not, developers, we think hierarchically often, right? We're really good at sorting and um, hierarchies. Turns out the average human being is not good at this. So menus are not so awesome for most actual human beings. Um, they also tend to become a dumping ground for developers. Instead of thinking through how should a feature be implemented, what is the workflow around it, ah, just put a menu item, because it's so easy to do. Um, so it turns out that menus, not such a great idea except for, for developers, right? So I think that we'll, con we'll continue to see menus in IDEs and whatnot forever because they are good tools for that use case. But I think in more um, consumer software, quote-unquote, I think they're going to fade away more and more and more. Uh, we're going to move more to direct UI. So this is something that we pioneered in Plasma as well, where uh, instead of relying on menus uh, or even magical right-click uh, context menus, although we still have them, 
Uh, we try and make sure that anything that is used by any reasonable proportion of the of humanity can get to it without a right-click menu. Because right-click menus are completely and utterly undiscoverable. Okay. Right? So this is... Okay, right-click yeah. menus, I'll give you that. Right. And so this, this movement away from menus is really about developing software for a, a modern audience uh, with a greater emphasis on kind of everyday usability. We've moved away from making specialist tools. Like 30 years ago, you use a computer, you're you into computers, right? You're a hacker of some sort, right? You hacked on something. Uh, these days, it's the average Joe, the person who flips your burger at McDonald's or runs uh, the accounting department. These people need to be productive with these machines. And this is the software that it's being written for today. Okay, but the problem with this is that every new release of a distro, there's a new icon set. And the menu that looks like a save button has changed to something completely different. So you can't say, like I give the example of the configuration settings. It's a, it's three dots in some places. It's a spanner in some places. It's a, uh, you know, the KD cog. So how do we fix that? Right. So this is one of the issues with designing new UI concepts. Um, the save icon is a good example. It's still a floppy disk. <clears throat> Every once in a while, someone goes, we should update that. It's like, no, that is part of a language now, right? It's design language. No, nobody under the age of 20, you know, knows or, or appreciates what a floppy disk is, right? Uh, but it doesn't matter because they know it means save. Just like I know the word no means to mentally capture a concept, right? It's a word. Um, so with the new stuff, like the hamburger, three lines, whatever, you have to invent new design language. Now, with new design language, those of us who are used to computers, we don't know it, right? Uh, it's like, it's well, it's not like, it is adding new verbs or nouns to a language. So if someone comes in and says, look, we have this new word in English, it's frobber, and you're like, what does frobber mean? And you have to learn it. And this is always uncomfortable. But if we don't make some of these these moves forward... In 100 years, we're going to have using the same crappy software. I, I don't disagree with everybody using the word flubber. What I agree disagree with is one person is using flubber, the next person on the same system is going to be so, using flipper. Right, this is where we're going with this. So often in language, natural language, like human language, when, right, when new vocabulary enters, there's often variant. And sometimes some of them stay and they become homonyms and, you, and you, just, you, you just learn two words of the same thing. And it's not a big deal. But yes, over time, it tends to simplify down. I fully expect that we're going to end up with like the hamburger icon everywhere. That's the one three lines. I think this is something the freedesktop.org project should be working on, to be honest. That, that would be the perfect kind of thing for them, yes. So, yeah. And now the last question, I promise, uh, is the date and time in Plasma 5. Yep. Uh, you can change it to ISO 8601 date, month, day, 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 which, if you're going through log files, is... Painful. Um, I've been following the the, uh, the 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 KDE, but apparently it's a, a QT uh, thing. How can we get that fixed? I will buy beer. Seriously. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? It is Fostum after all, which is Belgian for beer, I think. Um, given the amounts consumed here, yeah. So you need to go down a few blocks that way um, to that table and ask. There's a bunch of the Plasma developers down there actually right now. Um, I don't know what the, what the fix is. So, 
Sorry. Was there anything else to do with Collab or anything else that I missed that I should have gotten? No, so we're releasing Collab 16 tomorrow. This is very exciting because it unifies the community and enterprise editions into one edition. So we just have Collab now. Uh, so it simplifies for everyone. Uh, everyone gets the same thing. Uh, this also means that if you decide tomorrow you want to pay for support from Collab Systems, you don't have to migrate your server. You just continue using Collab, uh, the exact same instance, and we can walk in and give you support. Also, they exchange connectors. They have been notorious for changing over time. Yep. Um, you're, you're continuing to follow up those, okay? Uh, you mean for Outlook or? For Outlook, yes. Yeah. So we provide ActiveSync for Outlook 2013 and newer. Uh, we currently have a project underway that we hope to deliver mid-year. Uh, with the Open Change uh, project, not Open Exchange, but Open Change, uh, it is a server-side implementation of extended Mappy. So once that's done, knock on wood, uh, then your Outlook will actually see Colab as an Exchange server. Uh, then I can connect with any client to Colab and feed it to there. Yeah. Awesome, excellent. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank I you. Appreciate all the work you've done over the years. Thank you. Hello, this is Ken, your Action News reporter here at the KDE booth with Jonathan Riddle. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Did I pronounce that right? Jonathan Riddle, yes. You are going to give us a scoop here. Uh, so I've just switched the buttons to turn on the website for KDE Neon, which is the newest KDE project, and is going to be the best way to get KDE software. Uh, it's an archive of packages um, of KDE software built directly from KDE Git repositories for developers or from KDE releases for users. So previously, KDE was always and always will be reliant upon distributions to take their software and then package that up and make that available to users. That typically has some delay in it, and they typically like to add patches and make, make things different. Uh, KDE Neon has minimal delay. We have a continuous integration system. When somebody commits to KDE Git, the our cloudy servers will do their cloud thing and build it immediately and you'll get a package available um, as soon as it's compiled. When you say package, are we talking RPM or DEB? Or? It, it uses a Ubuntu LTS as the stable base. So you've got a stable base, which is nice technology and many people are familiar with it. Um, but it will have the latest KDE either releases or from Git, depending on how crack of the day you want to be. Is this cross-distro or... Is a bit, you, do you have to be running uh, Kubuntu in order to benefit from this? Uh, it, well, as I say, it uses, the, it uses Ubuntu LTS base. So at the minute, you need to install some Ubuntu variants and add this archive. Um, coming shortly in the next few weeks, we'll have uh, downloadable images, so you can just install it directly. Absolutely awesome. What has been... That's really cool, because for the 20 people who are listening to this, they have fixed the ISO 8601 bug in this. So you definitely want to be downloading this and trying it out. Um, what prompted you to do this? Uh, well, I found myself kind of unbusy last last summer because I had some fallout with some previous projects that I've been working with. And I, we went on holiday. We went to L.A. and we hung out on Venice Beach and went surfing. And uh, while we were surfing, we were wondering how can we get KDE software into the hands of users in a way in which we intend it to be done and in a way which um, gets the users directly without without having further delays happening down the line. Uh, so we came up with the idea of having Neon as a KDE project, and we're all part of the, the same large community. 
and that that's great for KDE developers because often they release their software and then they try it out several months later in some distribution and it, there's, it's been packaged incorrectly, there's some bug, there's some dependency that's missing. Uh, with Neon, any KDE developer can can fix that directly themselves. Um, How long then? So say this bug was not fixed and I had you here, yep. bought you beer and uh, you fixed it for me. How long then before I would see it? I would, it, so we would uh, push the commit to Git and the KDE Neon build server would go, ah, there's a new commit here, and that would fire up a magic machine in the cloud that would compile it, make packages, put it in the archive, and it would be available within the hour. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. So this is, this is ideal for KDE fans, and, and most Linux desktop users, they're not, it hasn't got the mass market, and it's not going to anytime soon, so most people who use KDE software are... Um, are fans and they want the latest features and we whenever I make a plasma release for KDE of the desktop it comes up with all the new features and then people go well how do I get it and we go well you have to wait another month or something and or add this archive and there you go using neon they'll get it directly on the same day that we make that announcement and it's supported by the community uh, it's a KDE official KDE project. KDE project so if you want to get help you go to KDE forums or you go on the mailing list um, or you ask on on the Facebook group or whatever else um, KDE does to support its software. Is it the intention to always have to use Kubuntu or can you say have Fedora and then download KDE on top of that? At the minute I'm only expecting to make it for, for the Ubuntu stable base. It's quite a, it's a nice technology that I'm familiar with. Um, it, they have two-year releases so that doesn't update too often uh, but they, they backport drivers and, and various other bits as needed. Um, so yes, I'm expecting to only keep on Ubuntu as the base for it. Okay. So you had some uh, some controversy during the year. Do you want to say anything about that, or do you want to just move on to describing what else you have on on the table? Yeah, I think no comment. Particularly. Thank you. Thank you. Had to ask. Had to ask. You know yourself. So what have we got? KDE phone at last. Uh, we've got Plasma Mobile. Uh, so that's a project we were working on last year. Uh, we had a we had nothing on the screen six months ago, and now we have a functional phone. And it just uses a normal Linux distribution, and it just uses the, the normal Linux stack. So unlike Android or other other kind of uh, uses of Linux on phones, it just uses the normal environment that people are familiar with. Um, it uses Quinn, KWin, the window manager, um, to display the stuff on Wayland. Um, and it's a really nice testbed for Wayland, of course. Um, and all the applications that work on the desktop also work on the phone, and an increasing number of applications, their user interface is written so that it can adapt between between the two form factors, and that's really easy and nice to do with Qt. So I can run any KDE app on this? Right, you can run any, any KDE application on that. Of course, a lot the user interface will be not very useful, uh, which is why with Qt, um, yeah, using QML, the... the Making it adaptable between the two is really nice and easy. What's what's the hardware itself? Uh, that's a Nexus Five, and we've got images for Nexus Five that you can get from PlasmaMobile.org. Um, and yeah, the Google Nexus Five is just a nice hacker phone that that is easily available and customizable. And of course, we'd welcome anybody making images for other other phones as well. How difficult is that? Well, if I can do it, then anybody can do it, right? <laughs> um, no, I don't think I don't I don't think you uh, think you're probably overestimating other people's abilities. So, what was the uh, what's the plans for next year other than new on? Well, do you need 
to, to go to Venice Beach for another while to come up with inspiration stuff? Um, yeah, that's always always fun to be the international freedom fighter and yeah. travel around the world. Uh, that's always an enjoyable part of working with the KD community. They're, they're very friendly people. And my plans for next year are to make Neon the best way to get KDE software. So get those installable images out and make sure the packages are updated. Um, maybe make sure that packages are available with something like XD, XDG app. So in a containerized way that can be easily installed, for example. Um, and that it's a very slick user experience. Okay, cool. Anything else you want to uh, talk about that I've missed? Nope, I don't think so. Nope. Come, come to FOSDEM, come to the come to the launch party tonight in Grand Place. Of this? Of KD Neon. Oh, cool. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. It's always been a pleasure. Thank you. And I'm talking to? Italo Vignoli. And you're with the LibreOffice project. Yes. What's your function there? Uh, I'm uh, media relation and marketing uh, responsible for the LibreOffice project. So can you tell us a bit about uh, LibreOffice? I think everybody knows, but just to give a background, where it came from and what you're trying to achieve. So we came from the OpenOffice heritage, of course, uh, after uh, a few years of the OpenOffice project, the community decided that it was time uh, to look for independence. And uh, during this process, uh, Sun was acquired by Oracle. So we, in fact, we already started to discuss about independence before uh, Sun was acquired by Oracle. And of course, this uh, was just an accelerator of the decision to become really independent. So we basically decided at the end to uh, squeeze in 10 months what was supposed to do in one year and a half. Uh, and uh, from January to end of September 2010, uh, we discussed, decided and uh, shaped up the uh, foundation and, uh, and the project. Uh, so that's uh, what has happened during the, the, the next five years, so between uh, 2010 and 2015, uh, has been what was decided, more or less the, the result of what was decided during those 10 months was to, of course, uh, first thing was to uh, clean and renew the code base. That was a little bit old and a little bit too difficult for new contributors to uh, start working at. Second uh, step, uh, once the cleaning was initially done, uh, the second step was to add new features. Of course, we needed a better code base to start adding new features. Uh, so let's say first development cycle, uh, 3.x was mainly focused on cleaning the code. Second development cycle, 4.x was mainly focused on adding features. The third development cycle, 5.x, is more focused on cleaning the user interface. Of course, we still add features, we still clean the code, but let's say that the focus changes a little bit. Uh, so you will see 5.1 uh, will, will be launched in a few days uh, with new difference and significant differences in the user interface, although the user interface will still be the same. So there will not be, let's say, a, a, a redesign of the user interface, while 5.2 will offer also the redesign of the user interface, 
although we will maintain the traditional user interface, because uh, we have realized that users, the user interface, of course, is, is according to user needs and user preferences, but is also is related to the space that you have on your video, on your screen. So, of course, uh, the sidebar is good for widescreen, uh, but it's not good for uh, narrow screen. So now we have the sidebar, and we will have an option that will have, a let's say, an horizontal sidebar, which, of course, is not a sidebar if yeah. it is on top, but it's, it's going to be a, a toolbar uh, with, with similar content of the sidebar. Uh, we will leverage, as we do on the sidebar, the Glade uh, technology. So it will be resizable. It will uh, resize according to contents and so on and so forth. Uh, it is already available, but you have to to uh, compile and with a, with a switch to have to have the new the new uh, the new version. Uh, so to to normal user, I would say just wait for 5.2, and you will have the option of uh, by by flagging and choosing uh, uh, checkboxes to have the interface that you prefer. And uh, switch best your preferences and the space available on your on your video. So that is more or less the direction we are going at the moment. Of course, we are open to new contributors, and new contributors may mean uh, new features uh, because, uh, uh, of course, uh, in uh, as a true uh, free software project. Uh, we, we not only look for contributors in terms of manpower, but we look for contributors in terms of new and different ideas to bring into the software. So that's more or less what we want. And if you want to contribute, uh, just access the, the website. There is a page uh, that will drive you to, uh, to the right spot for uh, starting with your first Cognit. The community had sent in some uh, questions which we discussed before. I'm going to try and find a developer to answer those, so just to explain to our listeners why I'm not bringing them up here. Uh, what is the relationship between LibreOffice and the foundation and the Open Document Foundation? Uh, so the, the Open Document Foundation uh, was created to uh, as a house for LibreOffice. Uh, of course, LibreOffice is a large project, uh, uh, and uh, you need a, a house in terms of uh, infrastructure. Uh, there is a, a staff that handles basic tasks. Uh, uh, it protects the, 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 the assets, so the, of course the logo, our uh, intellectual property on the logo on, on some assets. So the foundation is the, let's say, is the house of LibreOffice, is a not-for-profit foundation. Uh, it's very similar in terms of structure as the KDE organization or the GNOME Foundation. So it's, uh, of course, we have each one has his own peculiarities in terms of structure. Uh, our peculiarity is that we have members. So usually foundation do not have members. We have members. Members are people that contribute to the project, not only with code, but also with other contributions. And uh, if you become a member, you can... Uh, be elected and you can vote for other members to be elected as board members. So we have just had the, the, the new election of the board members. 
and uh, so the, the board member is in charge for two years. It, it will enter in in uh, in charge on uh, February 18 and uh, 2016, and will end uh, on February 17, 2018. So that is the the new board, uh, and uh, which uh, uh, it's a little bit different from the previous one. Uh, there is a little bit more of the community in the board, which is good. Uh, but anyway, it represents the people that contribute to the project. Um, a lot of, in the last year, a few governments have decided to mandate ODF as the document format. Do we have anything that protects the word ODF and the would it be enough for me to just export a Word document and say, here, it's an ODF format? Or does it, what, what does it mean to, when they say support ODF? Do you have a way of guaranteeing that yes, within the... Yes, uh, so ODF uh, is, a, is, a, is a true ISO standard. Unfortunately, we have to use the, uh, to add the word true because there is a false ISO standard, which is uh, Office Open XML, which is the Microsoft uh, uh, ISO standard. Is uh, actually is a fantasy uh, um, ISO standard in a sense that the uh, what is uh, created as a format is completely different from the uh, ISO standard as uh, as recognized by ISO. So actually, uh, the difference is that you have the ODF, uh, which is uh, not only recognized as a standard, but used as a standard. So all the software that save in ODF format save, uh, we cannot say in in identical format, but in a in a format that is extremely similar to the standard. Of course, uh, uh, writing a document is not a trivial task. Uh, there, there might be bugs uh, and there might be cho choices in saving in one way or the other. Uh, but let's say that it, the, the, the chances that two software supporting ODF uh, will open an ODF document in the, the same way are far higher than the chances that two versions of Microsoft Office open a Microsoft Office document in the same way. Okay, them fighting words there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, what is the reality is that as uh, the Microsoft format is an ISO standard, people is not dingy, digging uh, behind the ISO standard, and so they think that you know, it's an ISO standard, so it should be enough. Unfortunately, it's not this way, and uh, we are doing a lot of education uh, as a foundation and as local association to uh, to educate government about the real standards. So far, only the UK government has been uh, brilliant enough to choose the real standard. France and uh, all and the Netherlands are very close to do the same. Uh, all the other documents uh, follow the, let's say, the uh, Pilatus way. So it is a, it is an ISO standard. So I wash my hand about the standards. Uh, but as we are uh, 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 tough and nasty, we are uh, trying to talk with these people to make them aware that of the fact that one is a standard and the other one it is not. And of course, as long as you are implementing a, a, a let's say a, a false ISO standard, you will 
you will have uh, all the interoperability cost uh, that the use of a standard should get rid of. For instance, the UK government, they have estimated that just by switching to ODF, of course, when ODF will be running, and it, it will take some time, they will save a percentage of their IT uh, expenditure, yearly expenditure, which is 16 billion pounds. And they say it's uh, between 3 and 5%. So it's... No small it's, change. Yeah, actually. it's, it's not... And, and this is not visible. I mean, because it's not... It's not time... It's not spent for buying uh, anything. Yeah. It's, not, uh, it's not spent to for hiring a consultant. It's just spent to solve interoperability issues, which is the typical... What typically uh, happens is that, oh, I've, I've got a, a document from you, and I understand that on page three there was a, a, a graphic, but I don't see the graphic. Can you send me again the document, or you, can you send me the graphic as a separate uh, file because I, I need to understand what was there on page three? Or uh, uh, you, you've sent me a four-page doc. You say that you sent me a four-page document in your email, but I open the document. It's a seven-page text. What has happened? So where are the three pages longer? And the three pages longer may be the font, which is bigger. And this is, unfortunately, a, a real issue. But it can be three, uh, uh, let's say, harder uh, page uh, cut uh, that just end up at somewhere into the next page because there is a line that is added and then you have a white page or a, pa a page with a, just a line and then you jump to the next one. So a four-page document becomes a, a seven-page yeah, document. And this is unfortunately not new for anyone. No, no, you're describing something that I'm nodding here, yeah, which obviously exactly. you can't so see. Everybody goes through this. And of course, it is a cost. Yeah, and it's funny because when you describe this to people, they say, yeah, but it's unfortunate. This is how people are and how, how things are. And, and we say, but do you, do you believe that when we exchange ODF documents, they're all the same on every system? Say, no, but it's, this is not possible. So we show that the document open on a, I, for instance, I'm a Macintosh and Linux user and, uh, most of the people are Windows user, and I say, I send you my document from Linux, you open that in Windows, and you say, oh, it will be different. And the document is exactly the same. You say, but how this is possible? Because it's a standard. Yep. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then the next answer is, but then why Microsoft Office is not able? Because they don't use a standard just because they want you to use Microsoft Office. And continuous upset. Exactly, upset. exactly. Awesome. Um, was there anything else that I didn't cover in the interview? Or not want? really, not really. Any events coming up during the year that uh, some of our people oh, might quite, want? Quite many. Uh, we, we have a number of ACFEST. Uh, last year we, we had one in Cambridge, so that... Uh, uh, but we, we, we will have one in Gran Canaria. Uh, we will, uh, we usually have one in Munich. It really depends, but on, on our website, uh, there are, there are usually, or, or on our blog, there are usually information on that. Uh, we have the conference, uh, in September. LibreOffice conference will be in Brno, in the Czech Republic. And then we will have local conferences, uh, in Italy, in, uh, we, we already had one in Japan, uh, it just 
read our blog uh, and uh, subscribe to our mailing list and you will uh, get all the information. And details of all this will be in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.